are listening to Turning Earth on Dublin Digital Radio. West of Ireland is a sort of is a place that was never really it was never really taken over, you know. It was never colonized well, you know what I mean? A lot of the opposition to to the UK or whatever or the or, or England or whatever came from places like this, you know what I mean? That couldn't be conquered that easily. So like we now we're looking at a new form of colonization where it's kind of resource grabs, you know? Like people are trying to um, um, plant sickest spruce in Leitrim. They wanted to frack Leitrim. Now they want to um, take our gold. You know, so so it's it's about people coming from the outside, trying to take um, to, to 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 extract wealth from areas. You know, in a, in a way that makes those areas sacrifice on. You know, so it's it, it's really about um, not be not having political strength in these areas. You know. To protect people, you know that, that that we don't have enough of a say when we go to Dublin, that they look down here and say, well, what do we what can we get out of down there, you know? So it becomes an easy touch, you know. They wanted to start fracking here. There was plenty of potential all over, lots in lots of places of Ireland to go fracking, but they started here, you know. So they 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 they'll go to poor communities and they'll they'll try to get in and get started in places like this, you know. Sacrifice zones are an inescapable feature of the capitalist system. Through capitalist economic activity, which basically means as little state oversight as possible and no planning of extractive industry, certain areas of land are overexploited, overexploited and politically underrepresented. Last summer, a lot of my time interviewing was spent in Leitrim, as there's such a glut of environmentally destructive projects planned and in progress for that county. I met some activists from Treasure Leitrim at their stall at the Manor Hamilton Agricultural Show. Well, my name is Michael Gallagher. I'm a local farmer, or a, a farmer that's past his sell-by date, we could say. So, we've been at this sort of protesting for the, must be 10, 14 years, when they started talking about fracking around this part of the country. They were going to drill 3,000 wells in this area. So we've been protesting ever since. No, but they, they want Leitrim as a sarcophage zone. They want it with the, with the fracking, the gold mining, the forestry. But our job is to keep them from getting in on our land, to do the prospecting. That's yeah. our... What's the worry with the gold mining in particular? The way they, they wash it out with cyanide and all that sort of stuff. It's all, it can't be good. But the, if you look at the percentage of the, uh, this very small percentage of gold in it, you reckon that you have to wash about 80 tonnes of, of rock, or crushed rock, for to get this very small percentage of gold, like what's in, your, in a wedding ring. Yeah, so... So, so that's, that's a danger to the land and the water? Oh, the water, because the water in this area here flows into Drumahair and then into Loch Gill, which supplies Sligo. And we, well, it's pumped back to us. That's in what's in our water pipes, in, in our water mains. So that's, that's what we're dealing with. My name is James Glamartin, 42 years old. I'm, I'm a teacher, but I'm also a part-time farmer. Uh, married with three young kids, living out in um, Pullboy, which is just uh, the far side of Benbow Mountain in Man Manor Hamilton. Last October, we got news about this gold mining license that was going to be uh, granted. Not so much the mining, it was the prospecting. 
and it was kind of like, well, our townland was mentioned among 47 other townlands in the area. And uh, yeah, it was quite shocking to tell you the truth. So this is on the 7th of October, uh, we found out in our local newspaper, by chance really, it wasn't that well presented, but they're, they're by requirement, by law, they have to put it in the local newspaper that they're given a prospecting licence. And um, we had four weeks, well, shorter than four weeks, really to mobilise. The 7th of November was the deadline for it. So what we did was we got huge public support, a lot of information about what gold mining was. We looked at areas within Ireland and seen where these companies operated before. Cavanagh uh, Call Mine just outside Oma and Tyrone was the main place we used as a, not a template, but as, as our guidance. And what the news that came from there was not at all um, positive. Flint Ridge Resources operate a mine at Cavanagh Call in Oma. In 2018, a mine collapse put employees at risk of injury due to falling rocks and risk of drowning due to flooding. Licences in Leitrim were granted while the company was still under investigation before they were convicted in court. These concerns were raised during a public consultation in the Republic. The company claimed they had been consistently performing to an acceptable standard. In fact, they were convicted and fined 120 grand. Either the Southern Government knew about this and didn't care, or just didn't know. Either scenario is deeply worrying. So we, um, long story short, uh, the, the license itself, the prospecting license was for three things. They are base metals, which would be, I guess, necessary for the most part. Um, copper, uh, glades, uh, iron, cobalt, etc. Um, and they will be needed in modern day um, industry, but also gold and silver. And they were really what the, the company were targeting or are targeting, which we found from our uh, investigations. Uh, I guess you could call the, the base metals kind of like a, a Trojan horse to get them established in the area and then, you know, see the gold and, gold and silver. And they really are, how they mine gold and silver is the real issue here we found. It's, it's, they use toxic chemicals like cyanide and arsenic to, to take it out. Getting into very basics, it's like they act like a magnet. The, the arsenic and the cyanide attract, they're attached to the gold in an amalgamation. And that's drawn out of the soil. And then the, the gold is separated then using a technique which leaves your cyanide and arsenic left over. And that's what you really worry about because that will get into the water system. It gets in all the time, even though best practices, it doesn't, it does, unfortunately. And do you think there's a lot of support for the campaign in Leitrim? Well, anyone you talk to is against it all right now, but yeah. to get them, the problem is to get farmers to come in to meetings. I know the other night now, the, the work, it was a good evening and they were trying to get hay and silage now, so it wasn't a great evening for, the, for a meeting. Like, but I'm sure as it goes on, so the, so the plan now is to just block them from getting access to the Oh land. yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's are, are they trying to do anything, like, have the li what stage is that, have the licences just been given out? Just or? been given out there a few months ago now, that, but we've heard nothing from it since. Yeah, now. No sign of anyone? No, yet. no. But I can't understand why they're giving so many licences out all over the country. There's, I, I heard a woman the other night saying there was a 25% of this, of the south of Ireland is in for planning, for mining. But these companies, don't, don't be under any illusion, they're just here to make money, and they, they won't leave any money in the area. Uh, they kind of split communities if they get in early enough into the whole system and kind of give money to certain groups, and it, kind of, it becomes divisive them in the community. And let's be honest about it, times can be hard for people, so we need to be aware of that too. But long term, we have to think about our kids, and our grandkids, and our great-grandkids in you know, 70, 100 years time, do you want them looking back and saying, why did they let them in here? Why didn't they stand strong and say, we don't need this. We need a healthy, clean environment. And like, look at what they left us. I don't intend that to be the case, but that's why we're fighting strong now.
so obviously uh, any threat to water supply is a, is a worry for anyone, regardless of their, their profession, but is the, that's obviously a particular concern for you being a farmer. Ah, yeah, well, on a personal level, absolutely. But, uh, you know, I mean, farmers and cattle and, you know, gets into the water supply that way. But a bigger issue here is, and this is very simple junior science, but it's the water cycle. You know, clouds hit a, 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 a mountain, in this case, ben, Benbow Mountain, they fall down into little tributaries along the mountain, they form into bigger tributaries and on they go. And the reason I'm explaining this is the Bembo Mountain, water flows off that into the Bembo River, which flows into the Shanvas River, which flows into the Bonus River, which flows into Loch Gill, which supplies a huge area of Sligo Town and the surrounding area with their water. So you're setting up a situation here where any damage that gets into this, especially early on from one of the, one of the mines, will get into the water systems direct. And that has to be a big concern for people in the area who are supplied by this. There are tens of thousands of people in the area. And that's Benbow in the background there. That's Benbow in the background, yeah. part of the area that's licensed for? That's it, yeah. You're looking up at, at, at one side. We actually live on the other side where the actual, um, I suppose, oh. from previous prospecting licenses where the, 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 they're highlighting um, the particular area. But that it would be all, that, that's what you're looking at there, yeah. That, that particular beautiful feature there that's looked down over the lens of Manor Hamilton. and. Uh, we need to look after that. So that's a, it's a concern for the rest of the country as well. Well, of course it is. Like they, they give out license to up in, in a couple of places in Donegal. So I don't know how it's going on up there. Like, but they, they came down there a week ago to to support us. So we do support them. The same with the ones in the Sparrow and down there. We went down to them. Little would we know that uh, they'd be coming to. Us, that they'd be mining us now. Yeah, so. There are currently just over 400 active mineral exploration licenses in Ireland. Many of them are new licenses, granted in the last year by Green Minister Eamon Ryan. They are mostly in rural areas with little political power, areas that have already suffered from depopulation and economic deprivation. As Michael said, there are long-standing campaigns against environmental destruction in some of these areas, such as the Sparrow Mountains in Tyrone. As with other resource extraction projects, the companies involved benefit from low corporate tax and the right to externalise their costs through tax write-offs or purely denial of responsibility. In simple terms, to pass on costs of infrastructural and environmental damage to the public. Uh, well, I'm Fidel Mokian and I'm from Save Our Sperns Group and we've been going since June 20, 2015, so that's seven years now and uh, learning about gold mining, informing ourselves and then informing others, trying to hold public meetings and we designed and produced uh, information leaflets and we've been helping other groups throughout Ireland that are also facing the same thing as we're facing. The Sperns is a mountain range across counties Tyrone and Derry and already in the Canadian Exploration Company has got prospecting licences on 122,000 hectares. That's over 300,000 acres mm -hmm. in counties Tyrone and Derry. In fact, Dalready in itself has got one-tenth of the whole of the north under prospecting licences. Whereas there's 25% given out to companies in total in the north and 28% of the 26 counties has been given out in prospecting licences. the total land area? So the total land of Ireland, there's over a quarter of the total land of the island of Ireland has been given out in prospecting licences to mining companies. If you want more information on what's going on in the Sparrows, you can listen to the earlier episode of Turning Earth from a few years ago called... I think it's called Gold Mining in Ireland, a crock of shite or something like that. You'll find it on SoundCloud.
I asked with Delma for an update on the Save Our Sparrows campaign. Well, the campaign has kept going and uh, over during the two years of COVID or the main part of COVID over the two years, uh, we learned to do Zoom meetings and we used it to link in with groups in lots of other countries like um, Peru, Colombia, Bolivia. We have been in North America. We've been with a group there in Michigan, uh, Alaska. We have been with people in Finland, Sweden, Romania, Greece, Spain. Uh, we have been also linked in with people in Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea and in the Philippines. So we have had, over the two years, we've made numerous links and numerous friends and got great solidarity and support from people who are fighting the same fight throughout the world. Capitalism's sacrifice zones are spread throughout the world. As such, the struggle against capitalist extractivism is necessarily international. Some argue that it's better to have mining projects here in Ireland because it will take pressure off of countries in the Global South. I spoke about this with Jacinta and Thomas, who live in an off-grade homestead in Tulla, County Clare. Their townland has also been licensed for gold prospecting. They're selling it to the people by saying that we need to have these minerals to promote renewable, renewable energy. Yeah, going away from the carbon society. So it was a massive shock to me actually that Renewable energy equals extractivism. Of course, the argument for a lot of people is, and I get this on our Facebook page, like, so we started an action group, Keep Tala Untouched, and I get this then on, on there, it's like, oh, you prefer people in South America to suffer from mining, and, and at least here we can do it environmentally sound, and it's just, it's really nonsense, because they're not going to mine less over somewhere else. This is just a business that's taking... Um, advantage of a, of a an cultural shift to make more money. It's just another, it's the same as the tobacco industry, same as the fossil fuel industry, same as all those economic growth charts, just more. So there'll be loads more of this industry. And okay, there is different environmental laws, but that doesn't mean these things are safe. If you look at Kavanaugh in um, Oma, and that now how people in Tyrone that are objecting to a mine, a huge mine, gold mine being proposed there, and they're objecting to it, and pro protectors, as they call themselves, are being harassed, they're being criminalized. You can see that the same tactics are, as are happening in, in countries where previously mining was the norm are being used here, yeah. and people are being shoved and pushed aside. And, if and community split. Like and in communities Rossport. are split, but when you look at the imagery from Kavanaka and Omad that's been in working now since 97, there's no real environmental savvy being, like there is, you can literally see things being left dumped on site. Lachine has left a mark far worse than people imagine, and it's known to be the best and safest, most environmental friendly mine. There is no such thing as a mine that doesn't have an incredibly negative impact on the environment. Uh, and as well, make links internationally. I think it's hugely important. I think there's sometimes a tendency to think that, for example, mineral mining of whatever kind in South America, in Africa, is somehow less uh, remarkable or regardable than in rich, developed countries. 
That's not the case. Because if anything, our giveaway regulations around that whole issue of mineral exploitation is, is about the same. It's at the same level as um, some of the poorest countries in the world. And I remember when Shell got their license for uh, the, the deal they got for Shell Carib, the only country in the world that had similar giveaway deal because uh, there was no dividend, there was no tax on it from, from the, for the Irish Exchequer at all, and still isn't. Cameroon was the only other country in the world. That is not, I'm not saying anything derogatory about Cameroon, far from it. I'm just saying I think it should encourage us to look at where uh, resistance to gold mining, for example, or how gold mining has the methods it has used in places like Colombia and, and, and countries in Africa. The colonial imperialist project builds links between peoples that may not otherwise have met. Ireland was one of the first colonies of the British Empire. That imperial project continues today via the USA and the capitalist system more broadly. You might remember from the last episode, Ted Cook told us that under British rule, a huge amount of deforestation was done in Ireland to furnish the Navy with timber, which they needed to invade America and set up the plantations there. The plantation system they set up in America was a direct continuation of the plantation system that they set up here in Ireland, and it continues in an evolved form to this day. As such, the capitalist exploitation of land there and here are literally one and the same. Fidelma told me about some of the common issues uniting people internationally, from here to the Americas and beyond. Oh, the, the main thing is, it's about water and air, and I think there's no one could argue with it. What we need is fresh air and clean water, and that's what everybody is fighting for, particularly the water. Uh, you know, in, in all the other countries, most of their countries, uh, there has been a pollution that have no incidents that have poisoned the water supply, that have poisoned the fish for the people that fish in the rivers, people that drink from the rivers, people who bathe in the rivers, and a lot of them have got illnesses, various cancers from the water, from polluted water, from gold mining. You know, and I think the other thing what we have in common is that we value our area, our own area. Like a lot of those people are referred to as indigenous peoples, uh, you know, in particular countries. And But like we are indigenous peoples of the Sperns and, you know, we, like we live here for generations and we value the, the, you know, the moor, the bog, the mountains, the streams, the rivers, the fields, all that's around us, the woods, you know, we value those and they've been passed on from generation to generation and we want to preserve them uh, for our children and grandchildren and that's why we're fighting this fight to uh, keep what you know we what we value and to be able to hand it on because if a gold mine is allowed to go ahead here and the water is polluted and the air is polluted then the children and grandchildren won't be able to live here because who would want to live in a barn a wasteland with poisoned water and poisoned air yeah. poisoned land and the effects on their health i spoke to emma mink a phd student based in albuquerque new mexico emma had come to ireland to help organize the making relatives event which was to be a meeting of Native American elders and youth with local activists in Ireland. Unfortunately, due to COVID, the visit couldn't go ahead, but we managed to catch up via a video call during the autumn. Emma had been studying the historical colonial links between Ireland and the USA. This history shines a light on the continued exploitation of both lands and the people that live on them, 
and can help us understand how certain areas become sacrifice zones and how some groups and communities can be cast aside as unimportant. You know, none of this is new information. I mean, Malthus um, was writing about, um, you know, population and I can, you know, basically using like the, what in the US we call the welfare queen argument of the Republican party, but in the 18th century against Ireland um, and saying that Irish folks were a strain on British economics and, you know, the population was growing too big and people should have less children and basically valuing certain lives more than other lives. You know, you just see all the same arguments over and over and over again, the more you look back in history. So it has really helped me. Everything that I've ever worried about throughout my life um, in terms of why is this like this here? You know, like, why is the U.S. like this? Why is South Dakota like this? <laughs> um, like, that's all answered through studying the British Empire and, like, capitalism and the history of capitalism. So, like, there is so much that is inherited from that mm. time frame still. You know, there's actually a lot of similarities between there and the U.S. and also there and South Dakota specifically and just hearing people talk about the legacy of colonialism and um, the same struggle, but then also simultaneously telling us that the 7th Cavalry was primarily Irish immigrants. Um, you know, a lot of people involved in the Boston Tea Party who dressed as Native people were primarily Irish immigrants. Um, so it, it's like a very complex history as well because of white skin privilege and um, like access to European power structures yeah. for people in Ireland. So I think like on a global scale, Irish people do have a lot of privilege, even though there is so much that's similar in the experience of land theft, control of people's bodies, control of people's resources resource extraction, like violence towards the land. Um, and also just how people feel themselves being compartmentalized and cut up, just like how the land is cut up through land enclosure. Mm. I feel like it's very similar um, because we all are connected to the land and water. And when that undergoes that type of violence, um, we also become fractalized as well. I think that's something that I finally understand about white supremacy in the U.S. now. It's just like, you know, a lot of those um, folks who are imbibing that propaganda or who are living that ideology really see themselves as victims and really see themselves as um, displaced and, like, threatened. And I think in some ways they are displaced and threatened because they don't have that original land that was taken um, from them by European monarchs and aristocrats. Mm. Um, but they also are displacers and perpetrators of violence, you know? Mm. So, and not all of them are Irish immigrants either. They're from all over, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's all connected to the land and water still. So mm. I do, I think that is really important to kind of get back to those basic things that like people need to feel their humanity and their soul and understand who they are what you said there really put me in mind of uh of james Connolly. he wrote 
how the, the the Cromwellian forces of the British Crown used the Protestant working class and the Protestant peasantry, and kind of duped them. You know, told them that there's there's land there and and it's yours. All you have to okay. do is go to war for us. And then once the war was successful, the plantation was done. They were left in the same landless and subjected position that they were in when they were in England and Scotland. And there's mm-hmm. there that description of the white settlers. I mean, that's that's kind of the story, or at least in the popular imagination, that's the story that they were told about the US is that, oh, it's the Great West, the great un, unspoiled, untaken land, you know, not that there was just fucking people there already, you know, that, that got left <laughs> out, you know. It's like, there's just, it's there for you, it's yours to claim, you can go and get it and then you can, you too can be a lord of the land, uh, you know, a person, but it was all a big lie and then you just, this, this is the legacy of it now, it's the same thing. Everything just seems somewhat happenstance, but then when you actually look back in historical documents, letters between aristocrats, um, like land managers, dukes, and landlords, and you know all these people who did have power and were also uh, reading and writing, they knew exactly what they were doing to people the whole time. Mm. Like most, for the most part. Yeah. Not every single one of them. Some people were like really desperately like, I need to feed the peasants who live on my land because I feel really bad that I'm not fulfilling my responsibility. It's like the patriarch of this land or whatever. Right. But a lot of them are very clearly mercenary um, capitalists, you know, very early on um, getting lands in Ireland, Africa, India, Canada, every you know, all over the place, and then just doing this to people. So um, they were certainly profiting off of it, um, mm. you know, for quite a while. And also off of the workers. I think that's something, you know, that it is part of the story that gets lost. Like, yes, um, people, especially in terms of, like, chattel slavery um, in Africa, like, people were irrevocably harmed and like killed, but also generations of people were traumatized and irrevocably harmed from the, the decisions that these few like very um, mercenary, like <laughs> aristocratic people made decisions about um, based on money and earning money and gaining wealth. Um, it just it's like horrifying to see all the violence that they were you know just crunching numbers on Mm -hmm. but then also i think something that gets lost is that there were so many workers from all kinds of different backgrounds um but primarily protestant um and catholic um who went to africa as colonists who went to the U.S. as colonists and, um, you know, indentured servants at times, and then who really did become other people, like, in that process, I think, like, transformed through the violence that they were participating in. Um, So I think their story gets lost a lot, too, because it's not necessarily that they didn't have some choice but they didn't really have too much of a choice um and it's they lost their humanity i think some mm. some of them 
This series has been made possible partially through the financial support of Glushocht. Glushocht are an environmental and social justice organisation who helped me cover some of my costs, and this series would likely not have happened without their support, so Mila Buikas to them. Many hours of work have gone into this podcast and I'm trying to make the work financially sustainable. That's only possible through listener support, so if you'd like to help keep this project going, please sign up at patreon.com forward slash turningearth. For just €2.50 a month, you can get access to audiobooks, starting with Labour and Irish History by James Connolly. And for a fiver a month, you'll also get access to the full interviews from this series. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you use, and review and recommend it to friends. This is independent media. It will not get heard unless you tell people about it, so please help spread the word. During my conversation with Fidelma, the colonial aspects of resource extraction in Ireland came to the fore. I asked her, given the systemic nature of these problems, what are Save Our Sparrows currently advocating for? A moratorium, at least, on all prospecting licences. Because it's absolutely ridiculous that more than a quarter of the island of Ireland is given out in prospecting licences. Do you know that I think it's 0.8% of the land in England is given out in prospecting licences. 4% in Wales and 7% in Scotland. And yet... There's 25% in the north of Ireland and 28% in the south of Ireland. So we're being made the dumping ground of Europe, you know, of the world if it's going... I mean, the companies are invited in here from the PDAC conference. The Irish government, north and south, are out there selling us off to the highest bidder. And that is really what's happening. So I think that they should have a moratorium and say there's going to be no more prospecting licences and start reviewing the ones that they have given out and stopping them. PDAC is the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. This mineral exploration and mining conference is held every year in Toronto, where state officials from all over the world are flown over to meet representatives from mining companies. PDAC has been criticised by Indigenous and environmental groups in Canada for pushing through destructive projects, such as tar sands, and for disregarding human rights. You heard Donal O'Kelly earlier talking about Ireland's giveaway regulations, something we have in common with so-called third world countries in the global south. For us here in Ireland, our situation is best understood as part of this global phenomenon. The majority of Ireland's exports are chemicals and pharmaceuticals produced by large multinationals who pay very little tax and who profit from lax regulations. Likewise, all mining is undertaken by large multinationals. Although some of the exploration companies are based in Ireland, their business model is such that once a find has been determined to be commercially viable, the licence is then sold to a large multinational. What this means for us in the day-to-day is that our material wealth is taken from us and we are given debt in return. More importantly, it means that the natural basis of our existence here, our clean air, water and land, are destabilised or outright destroyed, and the costs for their uphill rehabilitation are left to us to deal with. Conferences like PDAC are populated by political and corporate representatives. The environment, our home, is left without a voice. Water and air, the most fundamental necessities, are treated as mere externalities, not for them to worry about. That's the main problem, is how the water is affected. Then the air as well, we've learnt that the, uh, the heavy metals that are produced through gold mining, uh, they, whenever the rock is taken out and crushed to fine consistency, then um, th- that can blow about in the air. And as you probably would notice here, we have strong winds mm. and we're in an elevated site. And, uh, there was a Finnish biochemist told us, Yari Natunen, his name was, he told us that in a study he did, uh, 
near a gold mine in Finland called at Katila. He said that he found traces of arsenic and mercury had blown up to 60 kilometres away. So that's, you know, if you drew a map, had a map of Ireland and did 60 kilometres around Greencastle, um, you're really affecting a very, you know, a very large part of the country. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to have an arsenic and mercury, very fine particulate matter, 2.5, that blows into people's lungs and causes respiratory diseases and cancers. And he said children were particularly vulnerable. These externalised costs, insignificant from the perspective of the capitalist, have dire consequences for anyone born into marginalised peripheral communities, either in rural Ireland or rural USA. But I do feel like environmental racism needs to be a huge factor that is taken into consideration for anything with that. Because if you're dealing with uranium and selenium poisoning, which is part of what's going on out there in Pine Ridge, you're not going to be mentally well. You know, it's not possible. It's a big problem both in South Dakota and New Mexico. And a lot of the extraction occurs in um, lands that are near reservations or on reservations and so the people who are affected first are usually native people because they're right next to the places where the uranium and um, gold mining runoff occurs and then also working class communities of all different types of people like white settlers and all kinds of other folks who are living in that area are affected I was living in Rapid City as a child. I grew up in Rapid City, which technically is not right next to a mine. It's at least 30 minutes away from any extraction. Now, you know, I think a lot of people have realized that it's a big cancer hotspot. And when I was a kid, I developed cancer in my throat at age nine and 10. So I had to go to appointments in Colorado for uh, five years. Um, twice a year after that, and then for five more years, once a year after that, um, after my surgery and cancer treatments. And I didn't live right next to a mine or anything. I lived at least 30 minutes away from any mines. If you can imagine, you know, (laughs) like, you know, that happening to someone who lives really far away. I mean, it's still not that far away. Half an hour is not that far away, but, you know, I wasn't living right on top of a mine yeah. or anything like that growing up, but I still got cancer in my throat. And so it's even like a much higher risk and higher rate of cancer for people living so close to the sites of extraction. Basically, that whole drive is filled with either quartz and um, we call it chalk rock. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what the exact mineral name is. It's just like this white rock that's there. So quartz and that are extracted, mica is extracted, but then also there's huge open pit gold mines all over Deadwood, all over Leed, and all over the ski area. So there's like, you know, these kind of fancy ski resort homes, and then right next to it's like an open pit mine. Um, and people just ski right all around there. And then in Deadwood, in Leed, there's a big playground that's right next to the open pit homestake mine site so um and that was just left open and then i know in the other direction of the black hills if you go that's the northern black hills if you go to the southern black hills more near um 
Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. They've now told people not to swim in the lake out there. And that used to be a huge recreation area. Um, It's about an hour south of Rapid City, Hermosa. But it's completely poisoned with uranium. Mm. People were swimming in that for the past 60 years. It's a man-made reservoir, but um, yeah. I can't imagine how many people have been exposed to like huge amounts of uranium from that too. Uh, and I didn't even swim in that lake when I was growing up or anything, but like I said, I still got cancer. So I don't know exactly how I got it. Um, I do know that a lot of the places I went growing up near the reservation, my grandfather, who's a white Norwegian, he just passed away a couple years ago, but he's a photographer and he had relationships with Lakota people and took pictures of the Lakota moons. His name was Bill Grothy. Um, so he would always go out to Redshirt Table, which is right at the entrance of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Mm. And you can see the Badlands. It overlooks the Badlands. And when the sun sets and the moon rises out there, it's just completely gorgeous. Um beautiful colors, beautiful moon, beautiful sunset. But we went out there once a month to take a photo. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, maybe part of it was like some of the dust out there. I don't really know, but people live on that land and people grow food on that land and have animals grazing on that land, um, both native and non-native people. And so it's really poisonous it's something that you know once the corporations get their licenses in once they get the prospecting and they realize there's stuff there they are relentless they started in 1870s and they haven't stopped since that point (laughs) i'm i'm really hoping that ireland can prevent as much of it as possible uh, even starting I remember uh, Jessica Ernest, She's a, she used to work for Encana in Canada. So she came over here to let us know what was happening to them. Because they were listening, she worked for Encana herself. And then she left the company or got rid, they got rid of her. But she, there was a court case, I think a $2 million court case that she brought against them. But I'll always remember what she said when she came to here. She said, don't look at short-term gains in money or jobs. Look at what you have to lose. You lose your whole countryside, your water polluted and your air polluted. So that's more important than money. So that's what I'll always remember that, what she said. Although Ireland never developed industrially as much as other European countries, the degree of environmental degradation here is not so far behind due to unregulated construction and industrialised monocrop agriculture. You'll remember Joe Sheeran from previous episodes who told us about the destruction of Irish boglands. As we said to start with, there's a very small proportion of the world created of bogs. Ireland have, have the largest amount of bogs in, the, in Europe and we've 8% of the uh, upland bogs in the world. Now, that's a very important thing. Well, they're, they're not, they're not a, a feature of the landscape that's easily re- replaced. Anyway. Oh, you won't replace it. I, I've seen uh, the ways that they have tried to stop damage to the land and they uh, put 
they, they tried to stop the straight runoff of water by laying um, old branches across and that's sort of a slow uh, natural drainage rather than a fast flow. But that is not good enough to actually stop the damage to the boglands. 28% of, of Ireland's bogland is being conserved and will remain as bog and protected. But 20, another 28% is forestry. So that means that 28% of the bogland is actually damaged by forestry That's and that forest that is already and that forestry is mainly owned by Quilcha and the Sitka spruce forestry, which is the pines are being released. That's acid that's entering into the water stream, which continues down and poisons the, our waters and rivers. Here in Kilty Clower, uh, I've heard stories uh, from people who would be uh, going back into the 50s that they could go to the streams and actually pick uh, fish out of the streams. And now those same people would say that there's no uh, fish life in any of the streams. And these are all in areas where uh, Sitka spruce has been planted. And because that uh, plantation, they started back in the uh, 60s. And it was understandable because land was cheap at the time, farmers had, had to emigrate, so they sold the land off at a low price. It would seem then to, um, to it, it was, it's, it, it's classified even still as non-productive, but they don't realize how important it is that the, you can't put productivity and count it in monetary terms. It's actually counted in what it can do to protect the habitats. And the richness of the habitats in County Leitrim is actually in the boglands and the landscape that we've got. So it was a, it was a real smack in the face now last January 4th when we got the news then that uh, Minko Limited had put in an application for mining for gold, silver, base metals, barites and zinc. And it's been a real journey to kind of comprehend how that would interfere with this little dream that we have coming from like mainland Europe, running away from that industrialized society where people, like people in the Netherlands, it's been so long in, that people haven't drank surface water that they have forgotten what a well is. They think a well is like in the Alps where the rivers start when they flow down. They don't understand that water comes percolated through the ground ready for drinking. And they've forgotten that because they've all been concreted over. There's none left. Or if they are there, people don't trust them. And they're probably poisoned. Like th there is no clean drinking water in any of those you know, um, Central European countries. Mm. I didn't know this when I lived there, but now that I've come to Ireland, where there is still that richness of like pure water, mm. 
and people don't really realize. But because we've come from a place where we, we do know that that's lost, the desert that's out there, you feel very strong in to protect wanting it. to protect it. Yeah. And it is frustrating to live in Ireland where the problems that are now bubbling here slowly, you've seen them happening in, in Europe in the 80s. And if you, you see the approach being pretty much the same, you fast forward, you're just looking at a country devoid of natural beauty and people all living individual lives. No more social protection of each other, you know, no more community, no more eye contact, no more, you know, waving your finger across the road to the other driver, mm -hmm. just everyone out for themselves. Right. And Ireland is better than that. I, you know, as a blow-in, I just have so much love for Ireland and the culture. It's, it's the quite... The fundament is still here. Yeah. Like, to me, this is, like, safe because the Romans didn't get here. <laughs> they didn't get here. And there's still a sense somewhere deep of an indigenous European, you know, is it probably even pre-Celtic, a sense of some real land-oriented people. Mm. It's still filtered through to the current generation. But I suppose, you know, no better townland to be messing <coughs> with. Like, it is our turn, and it is our turn to stand with, you know, other indigenous, like, we're not indigenous, obviously, we're, we're not even from this country, you know, but, but it is our turn in Ireland to stand with other indigenous people in the world who have, where this landed on their doorstep. Mm. And in that sense, I agree in a small part with that argument, like, you know, why not here if there? Mm. It's not like, you know, if we do it here, it won't happen there. Yeah. That's not what's happening it's just it's happening here as well so we can stand together and we have lots more resources but I do know that in communities in Peru and other places they have warded off huge multinational companies just from standing firm and strong together as a community but for now for us we need a few more people in our core group you know, we can't do it alone, no. and we don't want no, to do it No, we can't alone. make decisions no. on our own. You need to make decisions in a group. Of course. So it's about finding the right people to work with, and then we will have public meetings in the village, and hopefully from that uh, we can grow a strong community. Mm. With It's mind made up about what... Because if we do want it as a community, then of course we have to really hone in on the environmental uh, stipulations. You know, and I know there is a community because we 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 joined CAME Communities Against the Injustices of Mining, which is a national network, and it's really really amazing to meet up with other people who are going through the same stuff. Mm. So in that in when we had an in-person meeting recently in Leitrim, we met a person now where lithium mining is happening in in Wicklow, and their committee has decided that they would just you know request to be part of their board so that they can know what's happening and have some kind of a say in it. Now, others did say that they were dreaming that they could have any input. Mm. But to have those conversations, a lot of people find it difficult to say, no mining, full stop. Mm. So you have to be fluent about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just to have the conversation and for people to learn more uh, together about it. Is it is very wisely named Community Against Injustice. Of injustices. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's not against mining, no. as yeah. per se. No, because we all rely on it in a way, you know. Yeah. Even uh, 
cups on the table. They're mined from clay, you know. But ideally, that whole industry would would have a complete overhaul because, as it stands, the people running these businesses they're really profit oriented. You know, they're real capitalists. Yeah. It's like the gold rush, still happening over and over and over again. There is no need for gold mining in this country, anywhere, anywhere, full stop. Yeah. So, so when people talk about circular, circular economy, they should not talk about taking more out of the earth. We have enough on top. Mining is not evil. Using so-called natural resources to materially improve and stabilize our lives is not a bad thing. But there are problems with how it is done. How much agency do rural communities have when a project like this is planned in their area? A small notice in the local paper advertising public consultation is clearly not an adequate way to facilitate a well-informed and open discussion on the project in question. Communities need to be able to give free, prior and informed consent. Do we continue to allow capitalist companies to exploit the land for profit? Or do we demand that heavy industries like mining be taken under democratic control? What is right for each area that is affected by mining? How do we use these resources while maximising community well-being? There is no one-size-fits-all solution and it is with this understanding that KAME operates. At the climate camp in Tarbert last August, I met Anya Trainer, a facilitator with KAME. KAME is uh, it's Communities Against the Injustice of Mining and it's set up, I think, last February. It's, it's all island, so it's groups from all over the, the island of Ireland. We meet and it's mutual aid. It's all, it's, that's what it is. It's just, it's, it's people talking about their struggle, but like in a really useful way for other groups to kind of, to learn from it. And yeah, we're trying to like challenge kind of, kind of green capitalist narratives, like mining companies now are like our green saviors and they're, you know, integral to the, the green transition, um, apparently. So I think Kime is really about challenging all of that. Um, I think like, yeah, having kind of educating around like circular society as well, rather than a circular economy, which is like a circular economy is this kind of token expressions that are coming more and more into use and actually it's bullshit because it's just uh, you know a circular economy it doesn't it doesn't stop new products coming into the cir to the the circle it's just very much about like kind of bringing in and trying to use to recycle but circular society is all about um, kind of reusing what we have and also think kind of ideologically about yeah challenging kind of capitalist ideology and practices and so I suppose yeah it's really early days with Kime but it's a really solid group it's a really nice space and I think um, there's a lot of there's a lot of energy there for kind of challenging these really harmful narratives around mining and the importance of mining. People became aware of what was happening throughout the whole island of Ireland. Uh, they were contacting us and asking us, you know, well, like, would we help them? And we would help anyone who's opposed to gold mining. So um, Donegal, there were a couple of companies. There was a Dutch company in there, Great Glen Resources, came into the Glenties area. And we did a talk down there and they had the ground running and got their objections in. And the company withdrew their application for prospecting licenses. The same around Donegal town. But now there's the company up in an 
Michonne has been granted prospecting licenses. So there's an anti-gold mining group up there um, and it's shown against gold mining. Then down in, uh, we were down in Connemara, there were two groups down there um, and they again prospecting licenses given out. Uh, one group was successful, hit the ground running and the other group keep Joyce country free from mining. That group is still fighting the prospecting there. Um, the other one was Ballyconeely Roundstone Bog area. Uh, then the over sure Cavan, Leitrim and Monaghan, uh, they all again there there's groups in those three counties. There's down in Clare, down in um down in Wexford as well. There's you know, so people like as people became more aware of what's going on throughout the country, then and you know, we began linking in with people and now there's a network formed and it's called CAIM, C-A-I-M, Communities Against the Injustice of Mining. And CAIM is an old Irish word meaning the protection, the protective circle. So it's about us joining in a circle to protect you know, ourselves and our environment and our landscape and our health and our water and our air and all that. So it's it's the it's for sharing information, strategies, helping each other, supporting each other and uh, you know, having we come together every you know, we have a meeting online every month and then we had uh, every three months we would have a meeting in person. So that was last weekend we were down in um down in Leitrim and we had a meeting and it was great. I think, you know, it's the getting, chatting to people, the networking and getting strength and solidarity from that and encouragement, you know, and it's, it's you know, we all learn from each other. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it's about. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. So what, what's, is, is there anyone, is there any other group in the country that's at a similar stage to yourselves in terms of? where you are in the process? No, there's no other group at the moment at the stage that we're at. Um, you know, that's the, you know, waiting, uh, the application is in for a gold mine. This, I mean, other, another mining company in South Armagh called Conroy Gold, it, it actually, it was over at PDAC in 2018 and our two ambassadors uh, spoke to them and they said that Dalradian was opening the door for them. And that was doing it for all the other mining companies that have got prospecting licenses here. Mm. So if Dalridian get the go ahead, then the rest will be all, you know, putting in their planning applications. See, it's a big uh, investment for them putting in their planning application. Mm. So um, I think that once, you know, if Dalridian, once a decision is made about Dalridian, that will influence the rest. Mm. So it's past the stage of prospecting here, is it? Yeah, no, they're waiting on, pla on planning permission. Uh -huh. And that then is waiting on the public inquiry and then waiting on the Minister for Infrastructure to make the final decision. So now that's where uh, the, other, the others haven't in their planning application. They are still prospecting or else applied for prospecting licences. I asked Videlma what was next for the Save Our Sparrows campaign. The objection letters, we still are gathering them and anyone has to say, anyone, any age, anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world can actually send in an objection letter. So we'll gather those. Uh, we also are going to start a fundraising campaign shortly for the public inquiry because we need to engage some experts who are going to come in and help us argue our case because that's fine. We can argue, you know, how our water and our air and our land and our health 
wealth are going to be negatively impacted if gold mining goes ahead. But they're already have 42 consultants who are going to be, uh, come in there and they'll say, what qualification have you in gold mining or in geology or in hydrology or whatever? So we need people with uh, qualifications. So we need experts and we need money to pay them and we need, uh, we need uh, objections. So that's how people can help us. And I know it's a big ask in these times because of the cost of living and everything. And people, a lot of people are living in no very difficult times, the cost of energy, the cost of fuel, etc. You know, but we'll have to, we have to do, the, do it. I mean, we have to do it. It's for, uh, you know, it's, I'm a retired person. I'll be dead and gone. It's the future generations that will be affected. This is an attitude that I've noticed most of these local grassroots campaigners share. It's not just about protection of place and of livelihood, as important as those things are. All these people I've met share a long-term vision, an understanding of themselves as part of a continuum, as being just another link in the chain, from the ancestors to the descendants. There's an ancient Greek proverb that says, A society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they shall never sit. Environmental protectors act with the wisdom of tree planters, which goes directly against the short-term profit logic of the capitalist system. There's another ancient proverb coming to mind. This one's a Chinese one, and it's a lot saltier. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The system of government that's in place here in Ireland, one that is built to be in service to capital, has repeatedly proven itself unable to act fast enough or to plan properly for the future, be it in housing, healthcare, food supply or industrial development. It's not poor planning, it's no planning at all. The capitalist market is left to its own devices, and in turn, creates and depends on sacrifice zones to maintain its own existence. To finish off, I asked Videlma to share some success stories that they've learned from linking in with activists from all around the world. Well, a success story from Peru, from Cajamarca, and uh, that has given us hope. And again, it was people power, people all joining together and they're tens, hundreds, thousands, and uh, working together to stop it. Uh, their thing was the water, to save the water. And uh, it took years. And, you know, I think it's known that. I mean, there was another country we were speaking to in South America, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. But they, uh, again, they were working 40 years. And we're going seven years here in our campaign. And it's very hard to think. Well, you know, I'll be dead and gone if it has to go on for 40 years. But um, there was an also a good news story from Ecuador. Uh, the, um, the water defenders, um, they called themselves. And uh, there's, uh, it really, it was very, very interesting. We learned a lot of lessons from them, actually. And they went, there was a court case for seven years. And uh, because, because the mining company uh, sued the government for loss of expected profits, by not getting their mine, by not being allowed to go ahead. They sued the government and it went to a court for seven years and the court was held in Washington. And <coughs> the water defenders from Ecuador went to the court in Washington and eventually they won the case. And now they have it written into their constitution not to have mining. That's it for this episode. Thanks again to Glushuk. And remember, if you want to support the podcast, please subscribe on patreon.com forward slash turning earth. It's only 250 a month or a fiver, not a huge amount of money, but it makes a huge difference to this project. If you can't afford to subscribe, there's lots of other ways to help. You could leave a review and a rating, and please follow or subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, Podcast Addict, whatever apps or social media you use. You'll find links to all that on linktree.com forward slash turning earth. 
The most helpful thing you can do is recommend it to some friends, spread the word in whatever way you can. This is independent media. It doesn't get heard unless the people that listen to it and value it share it. Remember, any campaign groups featured in this episode were interviewed almost six months ago or more, so please look up Save Our Sparrows and Treasure Leitrim online to follow what's going on with them. Lastly, if you want to ask any questions or give any feedback, please email me at turningearthradio at gmail.com. Slongerfold.